Welcome to The Map Room, your guide to navigating the challenges of business ownership. A podcast about how to take the right steps when the going is hard. Join Paul Barnes, Stuart Brown and special guests as they discuss the difficult truths and tough situations that business owners face and dare to take on. Brought to you by Map. Hello and thank you for taking the time to join us once more in The Map Room where over the next hour we hope that we'll leave you with some insights and advice that'll better support both you and your business. So we're now in our uh, second episode of our second series, and for those of you that maybe listen to either the first episode or the first series, we're trying to do these next few episodes slightly differently. And really we're trying to bring a little bit more practical advice into the map room and maybe give you some ideas and case studies or actual steps that you can take against some specific areas. We were very fortunate in the first series that we had fantastic, uh, what we'd call founder stories, and we know they're very interesting. But what we'd like to experiment on today is something that we're starting to be called the difficult truths. And what we mean by that is sort of bite-sized specialist discussions and going back to the map analogy, maybe taking us in a path that's less trodden. The purpose of these is to give you a taste as to not so much educate, but to give you something that you can brush down when you need it and maybe update. And today we're going to be talking about employment law and the small business and specifically the areas of tribunals and what I would call the terror of tribunals. And the reason I say that is hopefully it's not something that as a business owner you're going to experience. But I can tell you that for every business owner that has experienced it, I will say once been never forgotten. So that's what we're going to do today. So that makes me turn to our fantastic guest today. We have in the map room with us Louise Carr, who is the employment partner at Bexley Beaumont here in Manchester. Louise has specialised in employment law for the last 20 years, predominantly acting for employers and frequently appearing as an advocate in the employment tribunal. So she's certainly our subject matter expert for today. I also noticed that just earlier this year, Louise was recommended in Legal 500 for 2023. So I'm going to first say congratulations, Louise, and then I'm going to say welcome (laughs) to the map room. Thank you. It's lovely to be here. Hopefully I can take some terror out of uh, (laughs) the topic. I'm sure you certainly can. I'll put some sort of context to it. Uh, Mm. I read some while ago, it was in the FT, that there was a group of universities, I think it was Warwick, Loughborough and Cardiff, and they found that companies with fewer than 50 staff were more likely to be taken to a tribunal and twice as likely to lose a case than companies that employ more than 250 people. Now... That's going to wake up the majority of our listeners. The space that we represent tends to be, in the majority of cases, um, organisations with less less than 250 people. So my first question, Louise, is, in your experience, why do small businesses struggle so much with tribunals? And what do you see as the top three issues? Yeah, I, I think there are many factors at play when it comes to looking at smaller businesses. And some of them, to some extent, emanate from almost good reasons. I think within a small business, there can be a greater degree of informality. And I think also there can be much closer relationships. And sometimes that can almost make a dispute more inflammatory. People know each other better. They're invested in each other personally, you might say, sometimes in 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 a smaller environment. And I sometimes find when I work with small businesses that individuals can become quite entrenched in their position. Yes. 
and that they see the only recourse to resolve this dispute is sometimes to take it all the way to mm. the employment tribunal. And I suppose sometimes might, people might get what they want out of it at that venue, but there are also benefits, as I'm sure we will discuss, in dealing with matters at an earlier stage and in a different way. Um, and looking at other factors... When you're in a part of a big organisation, you tend to have an HR function, mm. you've got prescriptive uh, ways of doing things, you have policies, you have procedures. And maybe I think, experience as well, if you had HR people, maybe that the experience absolutely. helps. Yeah, I think if you're part of a big organisation, it's likely that the organisation is going to have had to deal with mm. tribunal claims at some point. People can bring tribunal claims irrespective of whether their arguments are good. Mm. So it's, there's not necessarily a negative context in being taken to tribunal. Something might have just gone wrong. Yep. The individual might not have a good claim. But unfortunately, as the employer, if they persist in taking it all the way, then you have to deal with it. And, yeah, and I think that informality that you sometimes see in a smaller business, whilst it is beneficial, you don't always have the procedures you don't always have a robust contract and those procedures can be really helpful to guide mm. you in terms of what you do when somebody's challenging decisions internally or, or taking it externally to uh, to a tribunal I think also often it can be a lack of knowledge people don't understand often what the legal framework requires of them where tribunals pitch their expectations in looking at how they think employers should conduct themselves within that legal framework, very much looking at what's there from statutory perspective, case law. And, you know, often I will say to somebody who comes to me for the first time saying, I've never had to deal with this before. Mm. I don't know what to do. And I say, well, isn't that a great indicator of the way in which you do run your business because you haven't been challenged before? I think there's an irony sometimes when I take people through that process. They often say to me at the end, they go, it's been great. I hope I never see you again. <laughs> I'll say that to every lawyer. <laughs> and I think other factors at play can be a difficulty when you lack this experience mm. of analysing the strength of your position. Yes. Sometimes people will pursue a defence to a claim because... They, they just don't have an awareness as to how good that defence is. Yep. And sometimes it isn't very good. And sometimes people apply what they think is right morally, which can be mm. very different in terms of yes. a legal expectation. And also, unfortunately, sometimes people just receive bad advice. Mm. And that can lead them to take steps that perhaps, you know, I might not <laughs> propose yes. that they take. Yes. Um, and... and you know, that, that can be an important issue. It's about, if you go through this process, it's about finding the right person for mm. you to work with your organisation. It's, it's an experience that it obviously can be challenging, but I always feel that I, I undertake all of my own advocacy at tribunals, so I see somebody through from the first time, you know, I pick up the phone or they yep. pick up the phone to me. And you do feel as if you're kind of very much together in dealing mm. with this. It's quite a cohesive process you have with your client on the ground. Um, but yes, I mean, I think those are some of the factors mm. at play, certainly when it comes to dealing with matters in a smaller environment. Um, and the top three struggles 
that a smaller business might encounter. I think sometimes they don't invest in good advice. Yes. And that can be a difficulty. Um, I think I would say, of course, (laughs) that it's important to do that. But I really do think it is. I think people get enormous value from having good advice. I also think, as a second issue, resources. Uh, People are busy dealing with operational issues. Absolutely, yeah. They're running their business. They're trying to keep their business profitable. They're trying to keep everything going. They don't have these functions that can go off as an HR function and deal with it for them. So they don't always have or see that they should give the resources to this process because they've got a bigger picture to consider. Um, And I think as a third point, it can sometimes be about objectivity. Yes. And there can be, as I kind of already suggested, almost an emotional engagement in in this smaller environment. And sometimes people who are in a management role dealing with this, they're too close to it. They're too close to it. And that proximity can cloud their judgment. Absolutely. And that, I think, is also a difficulty. And if you're looking at trying to resolve those difficulties, there, there are lots of steps that can be taken to do that. One of them, a very obvious one, is making sure you've got the right structure, the right framework there when it comes to policies, when it comes to procedures, so that managers on the ground know what to do when they encounter a particular situation. They, somebody is, is absent because they're ill, if there's a conduct issue, if you have a policy which deals with managing absence or a policy that deals with what happens if there's an allegation of misconduct, then it's A, it provides consistency, which is really important, and it also guides you through and really limits the likelihood of something going wrong and you ending up facing a tribunal process. Um, Legal support or just some form of advisory support, it can be external HR, it can be external legal. What that gives you is it gives you somebody there who can show you the best way to prepare, what to focus on, where to use your resources. And fundamentally, if you've got that support and that experience and that knowledge, I think two things are critical when you face tribunal, a tribunal claim. You need to understand the merit of your position mm. in, in taking your defence forward and you need to understand the value of the claim potentially. Yes. Claimants are required to uh, provide you with what we call a schedule of loss. They basically mm. set out in writing what their expectations are when it comes to what they think they should win. Now, depending on whether that claimant has had support and advice yep. or the right to yep. support and advice, their expectations could be very unrealistic. Yes. yes. I often see that. Uh, individuals read what they say, see in the press. Absolutely, yes. They think that their claim... Big headlines or... Absolutely. This claim, £400,000. You know, those those sorts of awards are very rare. Yeah. And, but but that's their expectation because that's what they see. So, as an employer, faced with this schedule that says this individual Mm. thinks this claim is worth £200,000 you might not know which way to turn in, in looking at whether you try and settle mm. this claim or whether you proceed to a final hearing yep. and risk a judgment. 
And in looking at settlement, you have to know or get a good steer on how strong is this claim you're facing and what value does it have. And once you have that information, you're much better placed to be able to make good commercial decisions about the way in which you proceed. I'd really like to try and, and break them down if we can, Louise, because mm-hmm. while I was sat here, not only did everything you said resonate for me because I could think of a time when I've fallen foul of all those, <laughs> but I also know, as you were saying them, I can see why one of our listeners will not necessarily resonate today, mm-hmm. but what we hope is if they come across something like this in the future, they can say, oh, hang on a minute, what did I hear about that area? So let, yeah. let's start with informality. We often talk with a lot of our clients that we will get involved at a startup stage where a legal professional won't. Mm-hmm. They might be, you, you know, the legal professional might be involved in company formation and those things, but very often we see people, the entrepreneur will say to us, you know, I need an accountant. Yeah. And they think at that point they need an accountant more than they need a loan. But we'll come back to that in a, in a moment. But the informality tends to be, um, we had a fantastic uh, example in uh, our first series of um, John at Space 48 has now built a, a, a massively successful e-commerce agency. But he spoke there about the fact that when he started that business, it was literally friends and family that, that mm. you know he got going with. And we always talk about your startup team and then your scale up are going to be very different. And that informality of either thinking you know the person or, you know, we've seen it so many times, and I'm sure we'll come back to this, where, you know, first few employees what contract for employment we just Mm. shook hands or they just came in and started so talk to me about informality in uh, again obviously cases no names mentioned but (laughs) but where you've seen something to say this is where it backfired is it around the informality of maybe the employer doesn't recognize the issue that could lead to something because they think, oh, it's okay, you know, it's only Dennis, it's only whoever. Um, or is it the informality of, you know, are you also at the risk of the employer thinking, well, I can, if I'm going to use the phrase, I can get away with behaving like this because, you know, they're my friend. So talk me through some examples of where informality bites. Yeah, do you know, and it's interesting because the most difficult situations I have found in my career in dealing with disputes at work are the ones that come from that family relationship when it goes wrong they're the most difficult inflammatory situations usually the most costly to resolve and yeah they they, they can be very challenging when when it goes wrong and obviously people do go into this and that's great that people go in Mm. with with an expectation that everything's going to be okay. Mm. We're all in this together. This is a startup. It's fantastic. And you see it go wrong in both of those situations. And and it's not just about what happens in the moment. It's it's the hindsight piece as well. Yeah. When somebody leaves your business, for example, you might want to protect your business interests mm. and what that person can do as they move forward into a new environment, new working environment. Mm you suddenly often go, oh, can they take our customers? Can they take our clients? Can they poach our staff? And that hindsight piece is, is, it's frustrating uh, for that business owner. So when we look at informality, informality when it comes, when it comes to contractual 
documents, yep. that kind of side of things. There is an obligation for when an employee starts in a business that certain written particulars are set out and given yes. to them. And there's a sanction. But many don't know that, though, do they, Louise? Many don't know. know that. And and some of these, I suppose, to me, with my experience, yeah, yeah. seem so obvious. Yes. But why would you know yes. that if you've never run a business yes. before? Yeah. And you, you see things that, that go wrong from informality mm. in that sense. And, and people don't know what to do when something mm. has gone wrong. I, I want to raise a grievance. I want to, yes. if this has gone wrong, yeah. what do I do? And if you're in a vacuum either as the employer mm. or the employee, it makes it so mm. much harder. And I think, yes, the informality in that relationship as the other side mm. of things, that that's fantastic when it's going well. Mm. But What about, I'm going to say informality by design, and the reason mm -hmm. I say that is we see it now, so we'll, t we'll talk later about the concept of compliance because obviously it's something that, you know, as a director, I always say to people, too many people rush to have the badge of director and yeah. they see it as a badge of honour or a badge of privilege. When I say it's responsibility, and please understand, directors can go to prison. Mm. So, you know, get some realism about it. And very often when we talk about, um, you know, as I say, just I, when I work as a, as a non-exec, I will ask things that people think I'm therefore some kind of lawyer because I'll ask about, let me see contract for employment, let me see yeah. this. And it's only because I, I know where if issues are coming along. And it also gives me an indication as to the the thinking of that person, mm. as you're saying. So, you know, are they prepared for rigour? Are they prepared for process? But I've met, and, and I will say it's more of a recent phenomenon, where this concept of almost formal is perceived to be negative mm. formal is perceived to be not with the flow we're in this together we are you know they'll watch some kind of um you know high-rise unicorn startup and you know we're all in this together and as you said and not so much whether it's family whether it's friends but f when i say you know where's your contracts the one i my big bugbear and that's not necessarily what we're talking about here but it will lead to it is shareholder agreements um Oh, we don't need that. We know we're, we're best of friends, and and I've seen a, a a worrying phase for me recently where it's it's informality informality by design. They want it to be so fluid. Have you come across anything like that? You do, but I think I think it's the way it's the vocabulary you use, isn't it? It's the way you badge it that's mm. important. Because if somebody conceptually thinks formality, I don't, yes. I don't want this yes. to be formal, and I would say that's not what it is. If I was talking to an yep. individual in that position, I'd say it's about structure. Yeah, it's not about formality; it's about structure, and it's about structure that helps both you and those people mm. you're taking on this journey with you. And it shouldn't be seen, even in a small business where people know each other, as something that's negative. Yep. I think it's about understanding the positive benefits that you get from having some form of structure. Yes. And 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 very much viewing it that way. Yeah. That it's, it's helpful. And, and maybe, you know, we, we've spoken in other episodes a lot about culture and bringing that into your culture. But mm. I think it's the same way now that, you know, you know, the concept of is it formal dress? Is it not? The word mm. formal has become... Um, you know, negative when maybe it shouldn't be. So let's move that on to, um, you mentioned process and procedure. Yeah. And I think this goes two way. I think there is absolutely the process that as the employer, you need to have. So you mm -hmm. need to have something that says, 
this is how we behave in this instance. And, um, you know, whether that's then something like the staff handbook or you mentioned, you know, where do I even know how to post a grievance? Mm. And I've seen it fall down where because there isn't a process that both sides understand that I would use the phrase allows them to mitigate a situation or allows them to discuss a situation that it becomes very inflammatory very quickly because they don't know where to go and they don't know how to have that first, you know, do I speak to my line manager, whatever. So there's that side of it, but there's also specifically around the process and the procedure that, you know, I believe I've got my processes right. I believe I've got my contracts in place i believe i don't understand now so i open the brown envelope that comes from the court service and i haven't got a clue what to do because Mm. my my processes don't go past this point so it works both ways there there's the process of make sure you've got the process and procedures in place for yourself but also when faced with something that you don't know how does somebody get that process and procedure by the time it's got to that formal stage, I think if you haven't dealt with it before, it's very difficult to do mm. that without advice. And I don't say that, you know, yeah. in, you know, in, from a point of self-interest, because I think there's a danger in the Google approach. Absolutely. To dealing with this sort of yeah. situation. And, and I say that equally before you get to that stage, mm. the kind of I'll Google a contract, I'll mm. Google a policy. Yes. Yeah, sometimes that might work, but. But in both situations, I think getting that specialised advice mm. saves you time and money mm. at the end of the day. And yes, I think, you know, you can have a look online. You can see what you think might happen next. Mm. But how do you, you don't gain, you can't gain that knowledge without no. talking to somebody who has no. it, I don't no. think. And and I suppose that's the, the next logical question, isn't it? The, you know, the fear of the, so that, you know, today we'll talk about, as you say, the sort of, the, you know, the Google lawyer or, the yeah. you know, the keyboard warrior, to use a phrase. And, you know, when I first started this journey, it was a concept of, you know, the, the backroom or the barrett room lawyer or, or mm. barrister. And there is that risk of a number of things. Unless you've been there and, as you, you, you said something really powerful earlier on that said, it's not about the morality. It's not about right and wrong. It's about what is either... Right, you know, right or wrong, inverted commas under the law. So, what does the law say about this? Mm. And I've had my own experiences where I've been there, and and it's not a, a tribunal per se, but you know, it might even be a dispute, a contractual dispute. And you know, the lawyers will all sit there and go, "We know this doesn't make sense, but sometimes the law doesn't make sense, absolutely, and, th- and therefore you have to you have to be on the right side of that." So. You know, I, I, I've made the mistake and I see many, many people making the mistake now of assuming that I always use the phrase that says people believe that if I pick up the phone to a lawyer, a meter is running mm. and therefore they will try and not do the bits mm. there. And we tend to see with a lot of clients, they've either started that way. So, as you say, they've Googled their own contracts of employment. They've Googled this rather than maybe... Um, you know, so I've used Karen before to do mm. contracts for employment and all those things because not only does it allow, has it allowed me to educate myself to understand it, but if there's a problem, then the person you're speaking to knows what, you know, I always say, you know, the best chefs in the world know what's in the recipe. You know what I mean? So you, yeah. know, you, know, you know what's there. Um, and I do, and I've also seen, you know, sat to real, real sad cases of, where people have tried to 
not necessarily fight one of these issues, but try to defend on these issues without being prepared to pay for the right legal mm. advice to find out that ultimately it cost them, you know, I'm going to say, well, in one instance, it was tenfold. Tenfold mm. what I believe they, sh they could have paid because they failed to do that. So... And again, um, we've brought you in for for the for your specialist knowledge, and we say this very much about you know we believe that we have an advantage sometimes as the accountant because people know they need the accountant. Yeah, they only believe they need the lawyer when they've got a problem. So how how can a business owner engage with a professional like yourself to say, okay, I don't want to meet you on the court steps. I don't mm. want to meet. You. How how do I take your knowledge so i hope i never meet you in that scenario <laughs> how do i how do i engage with a lawyer to you know get me in the right get my compliance sorted talk us through that little bit mm. and i think you know and there's a very good point there a lot of my clients have been my clients for a very long time mm. and because of that i understand both yep. the culture of the organization huge critically for me i understand their attitude to risk mm. and if you understand that they are spending less financially yes. in taking your advice because you have that ongoing mm. relationship of, of knowing how each other ticks. And trust. You're building trust over that period of time. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, all, I would say almost all the work mm. I get mm. is through personal recommendations. Yeah. That's generally how it mm. works. Um, and it is, you know, it is about having understanding and where you get that from. It's going to differ, isn't it? So sometimes, unfortunately, it is hindsight. But yeah. if you have that relationship with a trusted advisor from the outset mm. who's going to show you how to put things mm. in place, who's going to understand you, who's going to be there, mm. um, communication is huge. Yes. You know, it's, it's an enormous part of my job is, is communication and managing clients' mm. expectations. And as I say, that comes from having long-standing positive relationships. Mm. And I think... It's just you get pointed in the right direction. I don't know how. There are different triggers, aren't there? Yeah. And, and it might be you're talking to somebody else who's running their mm. business. Or it can come about in all sorts of ways. But I do feel that generally you save a lot in terms of your time, which is mm. critical, yeah. uh, and, and cost, by dealing with these matters from an early stage when you start mm. your business up and having that ongoing relationship with somebody. Yeah. Uh, it's it's and it's really good it's a great part of the job you know yeah. my the best part of my job is having those relationships with people i i think that's key and you said something there which is understanding that that maybe that business owner's attitude to risk which is you know it's a you can first of all sit there and go okay this this is this is potentially an outlier i know your business i know your culture i know the other nine eighteen you know, 50 staff in your business and this mm. one's unusual. I've known you for this mm. period of time. Um, you know, I do, and, I, and I've said this before, I I, uh, I can't believe, I always say this, and I say, I can't believe I'm saying I feel sorry for lawyers, but I, I sympathise <laughs> with the lawyers that are expected to know the ins and outs of everything on instruction. Mm. And, and, and I'm just going to say this, it's not possible to do that. It's not, mm. it's like, you know, in our profession, someone come along and you know, there's you know, there's many many headline cases of audit issues that you see, but if you don't know that business and you don't know how they've done things, it's very difficult. So, I do think that 
is to say I think the accountancy sector has an, has an advantage because people know guess what we file annual you know we file annual mm. accounts we do this and I, and I do say to everybody who's building that business first of all find yourself find yourself a, a practice you can work with find yourself you know a mixed practice because there are always specialists in all areas so yes you know we're talking to you today about employment and that's your specialism um, and there might be other people who can do contracts and other things but find something you can do with it we get we have on our whatsapp group we'll get a lot of clients who'll ask specific questions such as um we're going off this a bit slight employment but you know i need i need does anyone know a lawyer who can do contracts in the u.s mm. and i always sit there and think you know with with respect how, how how have you got this far without knowing who you would turn to mm. and maybe sometimes it's also that experience of you know, uh, Louise is the tribunal lawyer, not Louise is the employment contract lawyer. If that makes mm. any sense, I think mm. sometimes sometimes that happens. So l- l- let's move let's move on slightly. Um, one of the things that uh, I think is um, is on the increase, I would suggest, and this might be to do with as you said earlier, you know, advent of social media, people seeing things, things in the headline, is that I was looking at the um, government tribunal statistics and they were saying that there appears to be an increase in what are referred to as multiple claim receipts. First of all, for those who don't know, what is a multiple claim receipt and what would that look like and what impact can that have on a small business? Yeah, it's basically where there's more than one claimant you know, if they join the claims together uh, under a multiple. So yep. if if the if a tribunal judge thinks there's sufficient commonality yep. in the issues that the tribunal is going to determine, then they can agree that the claims are heard mm. together. And so it's basically more than one. Yes. <laughs> and I mean, multiple claims, they you see um, you, you see things about multiple claims in the press. Yep. I mean, I think about 15 years ago, um, I was very much involved in public sector multiples mm. uh, where a lot of local government employees nationally yes. um, were challenging the, the way they've been paid. They yep. were equal pay claims. Yep. Um, ASDA might have been a big one that people saw in the last couple of years. And that's the been the more yeah. recent. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think probably it, it's not it's not outside of your expectations. Mm. These are often unionised environments. Yep. Um, when there were the public sector equal pay claims, that's probably about 15 years ago, the right. Asda, Morrison's, Tesco claims that you see now, bo- both of those sets of claims yeah. are about equal pay. Right. So you had a lot of people, predominantly often it's women saying, yeah. you know, the guys are being paid more, it's not fair, my, my job's, you know, as valuable as theirs is, or I do the same sort of work. Um, and they tend to be almost kind of quirky, often issues that yeah. arise. Now, what... I am seeing at the moment when it comes to multiples is um, holiday pay claims. Okay. From There was a decision uh, in the Supreme Court, not to get too technical yeah. and <laughs> boring about it, but last summer, which in very simple terms, it gave people who uh, retain an employment relationship, working relationship with an organisation, but only work for them sporadically, Huge in this in the industry we look after that's mm. often with freelancers or contractors. So mm-hmm. this is really important. They have got this benefit from this decision mm. last year when it comes to holiday pay. Mm. Now I won't take you through the technicalities yep, of it because yep. you, your eyes might yep. start to go. But my strong advice would mm. be if you work in an environment such as mm. hospitality, where you tend to use people during peak periods, seasonal yep. periods. Yep. 
it's really important to take advice because I don't want to, yeah, you know, exactly, be seen yes, to yes, give people advice yes, without knowing their particular yes. circumstances. And, and let's apologies couldn't you cross cro- cross you for this, mm. but let's just be clear with that for all the listeners. We are talking about general things here. And whilst I said at the top of the show this is about advice, this is not legal advice. This is this is giving you a general flavour, but advice always has to be specific. Absolutely. So let's just be clear with that one yeah. to caveat both of us. Absolutely. So, no. yeah. This is signposting. <laughs> this isn't advice. But but if you if you are working in an environment yeah. where that's the case, then you know, take advice because mm. what may be better for you, depending on all of those circumstances, yeah. is to make sure that you stop and start that ongoing relationship. Yes. And you start it once the need arises, yes. and when the re- the need is abated, yep. you stop it. And is that fixed term contracts? What's the tool? So the reason I'm saying that, and I think it's valuable for our listeners, is many many agencies will have a core team of employees, yep. and they will augment that team at any time with the use of freelancers and or contractors, mm. be that individuals or limited company um, contractors, and. That is very often around technology. Yeah. So if you want developers and they don't have them, it can often be seasonal. Some mm-hmm. e-commerce you know, um, projects go up and down. Or by the very nature of a project, you've got to suddenly have, well, we employ three of these, but we now need eight or we need mm-hmm. ten. And so, and most, most of the agency owners that we know will have a group of trusted freelancers. And it is that, well, when did that specific contract start and stop? So yeah. talk us through some of the tools that they need to understand that would de-risk their situation? There are so many factors which come into yeah. play with that kind of thing. And one of the, even it's slightly off topic yeah. in terms of what yeah. I was talking about, is about employment status. Yes. And that's so important. Yes. There are um, kind of three different types of status for yeah. employment law purposes, employees, workers, and the genuinely yeah. self-employed. Yeah. For tax purposes, you're either employed or you're yeah. self-employed. Yeah. And if you are using freelancers, yep. it's really important yep. that you understand how that relationship is yes. working. What status does that individual yes. have? If they're an employee, obviously their rights are, you know, there are greater yes. rights. Workers certainly have rights. Yep. We've seen some of the Uber cases, those yep. sorts of cases yep. that have been around status. Yep. Um, and if you you are a self-employed contractor, yep. then, you know, your rights are dissipated as compared to the other two types of uh, status Mm. so that's a fundamental you you need to look at that at the point when you're engaging in that sort of relationship you really need to understand how you're engaging what the nature of that contractual relationship is and what rights that individual has and when I'm talking about this in the context of this holiday issue It, it's as simple as and it, it's workers and employees have rights yep. when it comes to yep. the working time regulations and ho- statutory holidays, certainly. Um, it is looking at the way the arrangement works um, and how it stops and starts. What you don't want to do, to use a kind of old-fashioned concept mm. perhaps, is keep people on the books when they're Absolutely. not working Absolutely. But I know many agencies that do that with freelancers. Yeah, and that's where this kind of holiday mm. benefit can can be triggered mm. if you're keeping them on the books yep. rather than stopping and starting. Yep. So it's, if, you, if you're working in that environment, it is really important to talk to somebody who has the knowledge to uh, deal with that. And when, just again, we will move on from this, but when you say stop and start, so there are mm. many people who listen to this that regularly use freelancers and they will pay them on a daily rate for time done. Yep. And it'll often be a billing period will be in a month and they may have worked on four or five projects and mm-hmm. it added up to X many days. 
Are you suggesting, therefore, it might be worth considering what I would call a fixed-term contract? So this project lasts mm. for whether it's one week, five weeks, six weeks. It's got a start date, it's got a stop date, rather than this rolling how many months, how many days or you know, did you do for us this month? Yeah. Is that what you're talking about? It, it can be. It's yeah. looking at the overarching agreement. Yeah. And say, for example, a kind of straightforward way of, of looking at it is looking at somebody with a zero-hours contract. Yeah. So that contract is there. Yeah. It's in being. And you dip in and out of doing yeah. the work as mm. is required. Now, that's the kind of classic situation when that mm. risk might exist yeah. because the overarching contract stays there yeah. and it's just the work that, that undulates, mm. for want of a better mm. description. That That's where this kicks in. Yeah. And so with those freelancers, yeah, it's... They're so fact sensitive these situations yeah, yeah. that yeah. you know you're kind of a bit loathe to. No, no, give I, a... I, but I'm just about the flavour of I, I, I know of, uh, and you know I've had it myself where one the risks and and we're not going to get into IR35 and all that that was, yeah, yeah. but but businesses that suddenly when they're in growth mode, yeah. all of the legal issues become very different. Yeah. And you know, and I have seen organisations suddenly become liable for the tax of those people. Yeah. That's not about tribunals and we'll come off the subject, but it's something that um, you know, all of this really matters to. I I saw something else when I was doing some, some research for today that said that small bean small business owners are often being penalised at employment tribunals simply for a lack of of documented evidence. Now, I use the word compliance because we talk about, um, you know, one of the one of the benefits of a small business having even regular management accounts is not necessarily that they will use them on a monthly basis, but the process that goes on to produce that detail means that all this compliance is done in the background. So, if there's ever a, an issue, and that might be. A due diligence issue if they're lucky mm-hmm. enough to get into a process it can be a tax investigation it can be lots of things that compliance exists i used to work with a brilliant um hr director in a, in a business that used to say to me um stuart stop talking to people about it and start writing to people about it mm. or at least even follow up an email these days because that conversation doesn't exist mm. unless it's written down because in Two years' time, six years' time, eight, you know, you mm. stand in front of a judge and say, well, we made this clear. How do you make it clear? So talk us through what what you would term compliance in that area. Where are the examples that you have seen where you think if that, if that could only be documented, if mm. that person could only pull that X out of the drawer? Give us some examples. It's, 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 it's the gold dust yeah. of the tribunal yeah. of advocate is having the evidence so I think that there are two parts to that there is having what we've already discussed which is having uh, all the the policies and procedures in there and there is this issue which is about having evidence when you are challenged and you are facing a tribunal situation if looking at it in a kind of very straightforward way judges and panels if you're in tribunal in different circumstances you tend to either to have a judge or a judge and a panel of two members so three or one generally what they want when they're being asked to make decisions about what has happened as a matter of fact and they've got conflicting mm. evidence they want something to hang their hats on absolutely because yeah. then that legitimizes yeah. you know their decision so i don't know if you thought maybe an example if you had say a, a manager catches a, an employee asleep at the desk yeah and says okay let you off this time yeah if you do it again yeah we're going to be in a formal process yeah the employee does it again. Yeah. And then 
you end up in a tribunal situation, yeah. not necessarily because of that, but that yeah. becomes a relevant fact. Yes. Uh, that a tribunal has to decide, had he warned him? Yes. Or hadn't he? Yeah. Is this the third time or is it the first time? So, you know, a really basic level. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. And if that manager, which they might do probably be more likely to in a bigger business, has sent an email to HR yes. saying, I found John asleep yes. at his desk. Yes. I've told him informally yes. Yes. that if it happens again, yes. please can you put a note on his file? Yes. Um, and then, then you've given the judge who's having to yes. determine whether it happened yeah. or not the, the gold yeah. dust. I think there is, and this probably comes back to what you said at the very outset, the kind of informality. I see lots of people who, um, we we posted something on, on our social media feed just recently about conflict and mm. managing conflict and how you've got to look at it because by nature, most people avoid conflict yeah. and therefore they think that if they can have a, let's use a, you know, maybe an 80s, a water cooler conversation <laughs> uh, and probably a Starbucks one of these days, but yeah. a, 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 a mocha latte conversation <laughs> um, that says, do you know what, we, we discussed it and we moved on because everyone wants to move on. And very often in small business, you say the the energy and the time taken, let's just let's just agree and move on. But then that's that's that that kernel of an issue is just kept there and it's kept going going away. Um, so you, I get the point that says in a bigger business there might be you know, the HR thing. If I'm the small business owner, what do I do? Do I just you know I, I know somebody that says they kept a diary for that purpose. Is it just take a note of it, but just put it somewhere that you can find it again in the future if you need it? Absolutely, it's yeah. having the record, and and certainly you know on the other side of the coin mm. for claimants who have kept a record. Yes. They they have yes, their nugget yes, there yes. because they say I was harassed on that yes. day by so and so, and if they can show, oh, there's my mm. diary entry for that day, then it places the, them in a very strong yes. position when it comes to yes. a, a tri- tribunal yes. making decisions. So it is. It can be as simple as that. Yes, it can be as simple as writing it down. Yeah. But if you've got something, then you're likely to be more persuasive. Yes. If if you are in a situation where uh, a tribunal is making those sorts of decisions, the advice I do I give to people is, just because you've not written it down, don't assume somebody else hasn't. Mm. And also in this day and age, that's one of the reasons. But the, the concept of the multiple claim is very often, it's someone's gone back to their desk and they've just penned their friend in the in an email yep. or they've sent a text to somebody or they've, yep. you know, and, and, and I think that's the thing just remember now that where you think it might be dealt with it's gone away, do not be naive enough to think that that colleague, that family member at the start mm. hasn't sent a text to a friend, hasn't sent an email mm. and that can always be audited, audited later. In terms of audit, I wanted just to cover really the... What I call the, what I believe to be, and if it's still the case, the the classic three step procedure for disciplinary, mm. Mm. because I think it's crucial that knowing where you want to end up, you've got to know where to start. Yeah. And I see many many errors made where they don't either the person doesn't. You know, I'll, I'll say to people, and I'll give some real examples where I've told people in the past, say, okay, look. This has to be dealt with by a letter of concern. Mm-hmm. And, oh, no, we don't want that, we don't want that. And then I'll, I'll try to explain that But all of these are a process and, and a number of steps you have to follow. Mm-hmm. And you can't just jump in at the you know the last one or whatever. So where do you see... I, I'd, I'd appreciate it if, you've, you know, if you can just briefly cover 
first of all, what those three steps are, what's mm-hmm. without, again, you know, plain language in what they are, um, and which are the ones that you see done well and badly. Mm. And there's a mix. And actually, just to follow on from what mm. we were discussing, with it's relevant here when you're talking about evidence and you're going through yeah. that process, is that one thing to be wary of um, is that if an individual submits a data subject access request or if there are tribunal proceedings, yeah. all documentation for tribunal proceedings that's relevant to the claim yes. has to be disclosed whether it helps or yes. harms. Yes. And when there's a data subject access request, an individual is entitled to uh, information, emails, whatever it might be, where either they're the subject or they can be identified. So there is another side yes. to the recording things to help yes. you from an evidential yes. perspective. Only put in an email yes. or record something you are happy either to be read out in court, read out in court, yeah. or the employee eventually sees yeah. because of a data subject yeah. access request. So there's yeah. a, that balancing act. Yeah. Keep stuff that helps you. But <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but be wary. But, but, but that, that's a crucial point, as you say. Don't and, and sometimes you know I've seen it work both ways. You say the employee who sent the note that was somewhat derogatory, or the other way around, where the employer that said, oh, we've just had Stuart in again, he blah, 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 blah. So that works both ways. I think that's also something that people need to be more wary of now. It's just the, you know, the concept of data and even data access requests. I think if we were having this, you know, conversation 10 years ago, it had been less of, a, less of an issue. But I think mm-hmm. everyone knows about it now. And again, generationally, people are used to the fact that, you know, the the text always exists, the email always exists. Mm. So that that's really really crucial. But go yeah. go back go back go to, to three, three steps. steps. Yeah, please. Three steps critically: investigation, yeah. hearing, appeal. Yeah, those are the three steps. Yeah. And if what you need to comply with is what's set out in the ACAS code. Yeah. So it's the ACAS code on disciplinary and grievances yeah. deals with this. It's yeah. a really good resource as yeah. ACAS are generally yeah. a good resource so if you're dealing with a disciplinary or a grievance you've got to undertake as much investigation as yeah. is reasonable once you've done that you have a hearing a disciplinary hearing a grievance yeah. hearing and following the provision of a, a determination yeah the individual has the right of appeal yeah so those are really important touchstones yeah. when it comes to um employment issues particularly conduct issues um it's the acas code per se applies yeah. you know in well it doesn't in certain situations but looking at conduct or grievance yeah. it, it applies there um what happens as a consequence if the employer fails to comply with mm-hmm. it and i should say there's also a very good guide that sits with yeah. it that's helpful yeah. is that if an individual succeeds in tribunal then their damages can be increased by up to 25% if there's a breach of the code. Yes. And a flip side, and if an employee hasn't yep. complied, yep. there can be a reduction by 25%. I could tell you more about that and yep. when that applies, but generally somebody's got to have a successful claim for that J- to be the just case. Just take, take a, a very basic step back because mm-hmm. you and I are sat here talking about ACAS because we've been used to it over a bit of time. Yep. So if there's, a, if there's one of our listeners today that says, I don't even know what that is, yep. so let's explain. ACAS has the independent, yeah. would you describe them as um, mitigation? H- how would you describe ACAS and how does somebody find them? They're a conciliation service. Conciliation really. was the word I was looking for. You yep. can tell my culture, conciliation, <laughs> that word that word doesn't often enter in my, in my vocabulary. So that that's why I struggled with it. Yeah, yeah. conciliation. They're a conciliation service. Yep. They're entirely independent. Yep. Um, they, if you're going to bring a tribunal claim these days, you have to have gone through an ACAS yeah. conciliation yeah. process before you do that. They're very good. 
they're free. You can yep. phone them up whether or not you, you know, yep. you're the employee, the employee, if you're looking for some a bit of guidance, yep. Google them. You yep. can get the phone number. You phone them up and the conciliators are very helpful. Yeah. If a tribunal claim has been issued, then there will always be an appointed conciliator. Yes. And they will sit in the middle of the parties. And if there is a willingness on either yep. side to try and negotiate a settlement, they will. You don't have to deal with each other directly. Yes. ACAS can sit in the middle and speak to either party and and they they, they, yeah. they can act both as a way of just conveying an offer yeah. but but they're knowledgeable you know yeah. and they're really helpful so for an unrepresented litigant an unrepresented yeah. employee or former employee they can be great at giving them some information yeah. to help them judge their own situation yeah. so yeah acas that can be a really great resource yeah. to use whether you're yeah. employer or employee and, and what we're saying here is you know, don't wait for that brown envelope. If you sat there and you've got some time, go on the ACAS website, have a look. They've got yep. lots of resources you can download, you can have a read. So that's a well worthwhile action for anybody to take, isn't it? Yeah, and the .gov website is really helpful yep. as well because that's got an awful lot of information about employment expectations too. Okay. Let's move on to... Um, so let, let's assume the worst happens. Mm -hmm. What happens when you lose a case? Okay, well, obviously there's usually a financial sanction. If we're talking about unfair dismissal, then there are two elements to an award. Mm. One we call uh, the basic element, which is the same as the statutory redundancy mm. payment. And usually the greater part of that award is what we call a compensatory payment. Yep. To compensate you for your lost income having been unfairly dismissed, there is a cap on that generally. The cap is the lower, the 52 weeks gross pay or £105,000. But as I say, it's the lower. Sometimes that cap is removed yeah. if somebody's whistleblown, reported a health and yeah. safety concern. But yeah. generally, that that's where the parameters yeah. are for an unfair dismissal complaint. Uh, it's different in the context of a discrimination claim. Mm. But but if we focus on just generally, I suppose the concept yeah. of you're probably yes. going to get you know you wrapped yeah. with a financial uh, consequence. Can well, I ask a question on that? Is that you said earlier as about you know your case of loss? So is that because if we if if we had listeners today that thought that this could cost them a year's salary for an employee it's going mm -hmm. to frighten them and that and that could mm -hmm. be the difference between you know solvent and insolvency for some small yep. business but you said at the outset that very often it's you've got to prove a case so if i sit here and i say um i've been unfairly dismissed mm -hmm. um and i'm going to claim all this mm -hmm. but the very next week or two days later i was i went to agent i was in agency a i've gone to agency b mm -hmm. does that change that does that yeah. reduce that risk yeah yeah absolutely if somebody gets another job yeah then and, and there is an obligation for an individual to take reasonable steps yeah. to mitigate their position yeah. to look for another job and when it comes to that element of the reward yeah they're obviously extinguishing the value of it. Yes. If they get another job tomorrow yes. at the same rate of pay, yeah. then that part of the award yes. is, is usually Fine. going to be pretty inconsequential. If they've had to take a hit on salary, salary yeah. then that could be reflected yeah. in an award. Yeah. I mean, there are other things the tribunal has the power to do. You don't see it that often, but they can order that somebody's re-engaged into the job they had before the dismissal. I've actually seen that. Have you? I, yeah. I mean, I've seen it yeah. rarely, yeah. No, doing what I do. It. I've seen it. Uh, or reinstatement. Yep. But I think when it comes to what what's the outcome, mm. there are another couple of really important considerations mm. for an employer. One is they're public hearings. Yep. The press can go yep. in. Yep. Um, so you've got to think about yep. reputational risk. Yep. And also these days, judgments are uh, now online. Yes. So 
searches. A job applicant. Yeah. yeah. You, you existing employees yeah. who want to know what's happened. Yeah. I mean, I have. we have a lot of video hearings now. And so sometimes you see that your other employees, yeah. the claimants give them their, their mates who they used to work with the details. Yeah. Yeah. And you can see them logging on and yeah. watching the proceedings. Yeah. yeah. It's fascinating. There's a lot of work done now in the concept of culture. And we talk, we know, not only do we do it and live it we talk about it and a lot of our clients do it the, the employer brand is a big thing yeah and this could literally wipe that out i i think you know looking at the where we are in the world with you know the younger people coming through the yeah. system is so yeah. switched on yeah. obviously social media all of those platforms that's a real you've yeah. got to consider that risk yeah. as much as yeah. the financial judgment yeah. so let's talk about the financial judgment a little bit then so again i think there are a lot of misunderstandings so mm. I'll sit with people and I'll say, look, this is the process that you should follow. It's your decision if you choose to do it differently. But I'm going to tell you what the right process is. And we'll hear the usual things such as, well, uh, they can't take me to court anymore. I've not been here more than two years, et cetera, mm. et cetera. Um, and uh, the one that I think is, um, again, for lots of different areas, because the world has changed a lot, the concept of discrimination might not be what it was perceived to be mm. 10, 15, 20 years ago. Now, I could be wrong here, but talk us through the... So there are there are normally caps on certain mm. claims, mm. and I've always been wary of the fact that a discriminatory claim can be uncapped, if yeah. this is true, and can a discriminatory claim be made under the two years, or is that now a non yeah, no, you can bring a discrimination yep. claim. You can be a job applicant to bring a yep. discrimination claim. It is uncapped. Yeah. That said, um, I think I think it's for twenty twenty one. I think the maximum award made in a tribunal on a discrimination mm. claim was just over two hundred and forty thousand. Yeah. The average is around twenty four thousand. Yep. So they're uncapped. What we have, we have three different bands when it comes to because we've talked very briefly about unfair dismissal awards. Yep. If, you bring, if you successfully yep. bring a discrimination claim, tribunal it mm. may look at lost income if that's yep. a factor yep. in the case, but you will get an injury to feeling award yes. to compensate you for your hurt feelings. Wow. They're in three bands. The first for kind of lower level discrimination is 11, 000, goes up to £11,000. Right. There's a middle band... Um, which goes up to the currently thirty three thousand yep. pounds, and then the upper band for serious yep. discrimination is up to fifty six. Now a tribunal can award in excess of yes. that fifty six, yes. but it would have to be pretty serious discriminatory conduct. But even thirty three is, you know, if we looked at the kind of size of small business, thirty three might be an average salary in, in there. Mm. So that that that's a big hit to a small business. But let's just rewind on you said something fascinating there so this is the thing that i find most business owners i speak to don't understand they've all got this very wrong view that says nobody can touch them under two years that yeah. that so that's dangerous and the point that i i say when i say about discrimination changing is i have seen it through uh, location the mm. obvious point on gender which is um we have lots of cases where I'll say, but, you know, the majority of your developers are 20-something males yep. and you've got this person over here that might not be, it could be age, it could be gender, mm. but location that says, if you treat that person differently, mm. then that is cause for discrimination. It's not, and is that true? It's not necessarily there is a discriminatory factor about, you know, if people took really 
black and white, you know, whether it's ethnicity, whether it's race, whether it's gender, is there, can you fight a discriminatory case on location? You know, your office staff are treated differently than your remote staff, is that? When it comes to discrimination, there are what we call protected characteristics, which can be ethnicity, sexual orientation, gender, etc. And there are different ways in which claims can be framed. So if you're treated badly because of your sexual orientation, whatever that might be, that's what we call a claim of direct discrimination. And that there's no defence, as it yep. were, to that claim. But if it's a claim of indirect discrimination, so say the office location disadvantaged people who had a certain protected characteristic. Yes. Uh, I'm trying to think of an obvious example, but I'm sure I'll get there in a minute. Well, maybe you... one of the ones that I, I'm thinking might be happening now is lots and lots of people are either have uh, been used to a hybrid working policy. Yep. They may have been recruited in that environment. And I saw something, and very often it starts in the states, comes over here. That you know, the um, you know the S and P um, five hundred were basically saying now that you know they are going to be saying you know if you do not come back to the office, you're going to get fired. Mm. So, and I and I can't help thinking that people who've been recruited remote suddenly say, well, hang on a minute, that's discriminatory to me because I never had to travel, I mm. never had to commute. Is that no? It wouldn't work okay, in that way. Okay, that's interesting. It's a very obvious way it yep. might work is if you've got a disability. Yeah. And that prohibits your yes. ability to go into the office. Yes, gotcha. That's when a discrimination okay. claim could arise. Yep. But no, that's more likely to be a contractual issue. What does your okay. contract say about where you work? Yep. Is there arguably a breach of yep. your contract if your employer is trying to change it? Yep. And there, there are lots of factors at play there and okay. you know, in situations where that may yep. or may not be feasible for the employer. Okay, so that would be similar to as it's always been on accessibility then potentially. Yeah, know, it could if, be, yeah. yeah. Okay. yeah it okay. could be, yeah. Okay, where do you see some common misunderstandings then? So, as you say, the, you know, capped on cap, discriminatory yeah. or whatever. Where have you seen ones that you thought, do you know what, the, the people just need to understand this better? From what, from the employer's perspective? But either side, either side, yeah, the employer, I mean, obviously, this is aimed at the business owner, mm. but I'd, I'd, I'm more than happy to discuss it both sides. So what does, you know, where, where people have this, you know, as I say, the one that always jumps off the page to me is, nobody can take me to court if not been here for two years. And I say that's completely it's not complete true. Completely misnomer. That, yeah. That's just about yeah. unfair dismissal, ordinary yeah. unfair dismissal yeah. rights. Yeah. There are situations if you've yeah. whistleblown and been dismissed, yeah. you can bring a claim with less than yeah. two years. So that's just about, yeah. you know, ordinary unfair yeah. dismissal, as I say. Discrimination, you can bring a claim as a job applicant. Yeah. You haven't been interviewed because yeah. of your ethnicity. Yeah. You've got yeah. a claim. Yeah. It starts right there yeah. at that stage. Yeah. We, d- I mean, again, I'm only going to say this as an example because this is about actual um, steps. Um, I was involved in, the, in, a, in a business in Manchester a few years ago and we took an action there to only use um, the surname of applicants mm-hmm. because... I have learnt late in my life that, you know, my, my unknown bias exists, whether I like it mm. or I don't like mm. it. And so to protect ourselves and everyone else, we started to find process improvements around recruitment, et cetera, yeah. that we couldn't say, you know, you know, we said to agents, you know, to recruitment agents, we don't want Christian names or first names. Again, there's me with bias, Christian <laughs> names as if, you know. So first names, um, we don't want age. We don't want yep. all those things. So there are things that people can do. Um, but I think it's 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 understanding, as I say, the, the bits that 
don't listen to the person that just because it didn't happen to them means it can't happen to you. Yeah, no, absolutely. And again, it's it's knowledge, isn't it? It's all yeah. about knowledge. Yeah. And and if you have that relationship and you've got someone who's imparting that knowledge, yeah. and uh, then you're likely to be far better armed when it comes to difficult or not just difficult employment situations, yeah. just having good employment relationships yeah. with your workforce. The sad thing with this is very often the first time this happens is because it was left of field. You may have had fantastic relationships and that's why the small business owner finds it so hard to deal with the informalities we said at the start. Mm. The process might not have been there and it's just this ticking time bomb, if that's the right right phrase. I'm, re- I'm conscious of time, so I'm conscious that we've the sort of hours up, but I wanted t- t- two things really having been where you've been and having sat there and, you know, as you said, do the, in the in the adv- advocacy, there are cases you've won, there's cases you've lost. If you sat there now and said, do you know what, if, if, I, if I was a business owner mm. and there was an unresolved problem in that business, what's the one golden nugget you'd give them now to say, don't wait to meet me in, you know, in my uh, court attire? I'd say don't avoid it. Deal with yeah. it. Address it hand. promptly, fairly. The worst thing you can do is act as if it's going to yeah. go away. So yeah. deal with it would be my real primary piece of advice. Okay, fantastic advice. And if they, again, my advice is always don't deal with it in isolation. Part of the part of the concept and the and the and the mission for this podcast is to say to a business owner, you're not on your own here. There are mm. people. But um, again, no pun intended. I'm a big advocate of getting the the professional advice and the service. How if somebody's got if, if one of our listeners has got either an issue today that they think is brewing or they've been burnt and they want to do something different, how can somebody find you? Well, I mean, it's, it's very easy yeah, to find us. Yeah, you yeah, can yeah. look on the internet for Bexley yeah, Beaumont. Yeah. You, you can, uh, yeah. you know, our, yeah. our, the information about yeah. us is out there, LinkedIn. Yeah. Um, yeah. And yeah, and I think, as I say, it's, it's really good to have mm. that positive long-term relationship yeah. obviously i have a lot of yeah. clients who are act for an unretained basis yes and that that gives you comfort it gives you knowledge yeah. and it gives you protection yeah and, and i would just caveat that by also saying don't assume that if you don't have the relationship it's difficult just to pick up the phone and have the thing because you know yeah. it's about it's about reaching out and also to small business owner don't be afraid I think lots of business owners struggle to speak to lawyers because they're worried that they're going to look stupid. They're worried that they haven't got the best questions to ask. So, mm. you know, my I would say to everybody, you know, you know, we, we've used you, your firm before, um, is that, you know, reach out to people who are prepared to listen and... Mm. You know, have 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 learned. You know, Bexley Bowman as a business, I've known when it started. I've, I've mm. seen it grow, and people forget that when when we had um, when we had John Davidson from Bermans, mm. he just done his own due diligence. People forget mm. that legal practices are often small businesses as well, and yeah, they've gone through the same things. So yeah. I'd do that. So listen, we we have we have run out of time, but it's been it's been a fascinating conversation. Um, this is a series that we're starting to do around what we're calling the difficult truths. So today has been about specifically tribunals, and we did go a little bit more into employment law, but we're going to cover some things in the coming months around insolvency and areas like that. So I do hope it's been valuable. 
Um, as always, I thank everyone who's given up the time to come into the map room and investigate what we're doing. If you're returning, uh, we appreciate it. If you just found it, it's brilliant. And we couldn't do any of this without our fantastic guests. So today it's been Louise. Louise, it's been fascinating and really interesting to listen to you. I think you've given some fantastic, as you say, when we use the word advice, we use it loosely <laughs> in that area. Um, but thank you so much for your time and thanks for your experience and knowledge. It's an absolute pleasure. Thank you for asking me in. Season two of The Map Room has been brought to you by MAP, the outsourced finance function for digital agencies. Subscribe via your usual podcast app to never miss an episode.